Good morning. It's good to see you. I bet we got a bunch of people right now watching us from the beach. Don't you think? First week of spring break. How you doing? Y'all having fun out there at the beach? Thanks for joining us. Let us know you're here. Hey, uh, first time thing for me I'm kind of excited about. All three of my kids are in the service uh, this morning, and they asked me to say hi to them. So I'm going to take a personal privilege and say hi. Hey, guys. Y'all pray for mama, right? Oh, they're going to clap for you. Some of them are. It's kind of an awkward clap, not clap thing. It's happening right now. (laughs) Okay, so this morning we are wrapping up the waiting room series, right? And I, I get a sense that this series has been pretty helpful for a lot of us. Am I right about that? Make some noise, yeah? Very good. And, you know, we, we've talked about how the waiting room is, uh, it's not just referring to our, our struggle with patience, which we're not very patient, are we? And it isn't just talking about the hard feelings that we have about waiting because we don't like to wait either. It involves that, but it's a, it's a little bigger than that. Waiting room seasons are, are those seasons in our life of, like, uncertainty, right? Where things have, they've changed but they haven't resolved, where they've, they've shifted, but they, they haven't settled. A waiting room is when the bottom's dropped out, and we're not really sure which way's up, which way to go or how to get out. That's what we've been talking about uh, during, during this series, and, and we've explored, you know, how do we navigate uh, these seasons in our life? And we've discovered that, man, God meets us in some unique ways, right? God meets us in some really powerful, unique ways in the middle of these seasons and offers us strength, to keep going, right? At the same time, God often uses these times in our life to grow us. Can I get an amen to that, right? And I think it's been a powerful series. If you've missed it, I would encourage you to go back and you can watch the the sermons online. But we really felt like, particularly on this Palm Sunday, as we enter into the Holy Week, I mean, the cross falls, the shadow of the cross falls across this entire week. And so we felt like it was really important maybe to, to finish this series by taking it in a slightly different direction. Because what I found is not only does does God want to meet us in our own waiting rooms, but God also wants to invite us, invite us into somebody else's waiting room, particularly the waiting room of the world. And one of the dangerous things about being in a waiting room for too long when we're in that season is sometimes if we're not careful, we can buy into this sort of lie that the greatest thing God can do for us is take away all our problems, is to fix something for us, to make us a little bit happier than we are right now. But the truth is God wants to do a whole lot more. That's the direction we're going this morning. And if, if today's message lands on you like it landed on me, it's gonna feel like a nice, warm, fuzzy punch in the face. Doesn't that sound great? Y'all up for that? Hooray, All right? We're gonna be in John chapter 12. If you wanna turn there, use your Bibles or you can open up your app, but I think it'd be good for you to have the, the text in front of you. But John chapter 12, let me take a moment to set it up for you. This passage takes place during what we now call a Palm Sunday. This is when Jesus comes into the city for the very last time, and and the people are like, they're going nuts. I mean, it's electric. There's all this hype. They're waving palm branches. They're throwing their cloaks on the ground. There's all this buzz. That's because there's been a growing expectation amongst the people that Jesus, Jesus might be the Messiah. Now, a lot of us in this room If we were being really honest with you, we've heard that word before and we pretend like we know what it means, but we're not really sure. And so I don't want to assume anything. Let me just explain it to you really quick. Why why, why they were acting the way that they were and, and what is this Messiah thing about? Well, Israel at the time of Jesus had been kicked around and conquered by empire after empire. 
for hundreds of years, there had been a people who were living under the boot of some sort of impress, uh, oppressive empire, dictatorship. And things weren't, weren't good. It was, it was a hard life uh, for Israel. And despite that, despite the fact that things weren't, weren't good, the people still managed to live with this sense of expectancy. Because all throughout their history, God made these promises. God promised that one day he was gonna do something. More specifically, God promised one day he was gonna send someone who was gonna do something about the suffering, who was gonna begin to set everything right. And this someone came to be known as the Messiah. And so leading up to this moment in John chapter 12, Jesus has been doing all sorts of things, saying all sorts of things that feel and sound kind of Messiah-like. In the previous chapter, he raised a guy from the dead. That might get you a few votes, right? When it comes to people think you're the Messiah or not. Raise somebody from the dead, check, right? So they're freaking out. There's all, you gotta feel this, right? There's all this buzz, all this electricity, all this hype. I mean, so much so that the Pharisees, who were sort of the opponents of Jesus, they even recognized this. They said the whole world has gone after Jesus. But what's so weird to me is that in this passage we're gonna look at, Jesus doesn't seem to be all bought into the hype. In fact, he feels kind of indifferent towards it. He seems sort of checked out. In fact, I imagine him saying the words I'm, I'm about to read to you, sort of staring off into the distance while all this is kind of going on behind him. Hear these words from Jesus. You out there still? That's convincing. Hear what Jesus says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Here's the one I think a lot of us get hung up on sometimes. I know I have. Verse 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, no, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. What? I mean, it seems a little weird, right? But these are the words coming out of Jesus' mouth while everybody's sort of freaking out. This seems a little strange. There's a whole lot going on here, and I wanna kind of work our way through it, but let's start with the big, hairy verse. Can we do that? Verse 25, that one's just left me with a whole bunch of questions, and maybe it has for you too. I'll go ahead and read it again, but Jesus says, he says this to us, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Not only about you, but right off the bat, this sounds like Jesus is like a killjoy here. I mean, really, how do you, how do you clean this one up for people? It almost, you know, it sounds like, hey, what is it, what are the things in your life that you love, that you actually enjoy? Get rid of them, because they're garbage. Whatever it is that you don't like, whatever it is that you makes you miserable, be sure to hold on to that, because guess what? You're gonna keep it forever. This sounds great, doesn't it? seems like sort of the goal of faithfulness or whatever Jesus is up to is just to make sure that we're miserable. Reminds me of that scene from Monty Python, the Holy Grail. Any other weirdos out there? Love them some Monty Python. You know what I'm talking about when the monks are walking around with that wooden board and they're like beating themselves on the head? 
It's what it kind of feels like. It's what Jesus is thinking. You want to know how you're doing a good job? How miserable are you? Are you loving your life? Well, you're heading in the wrong direction. I don't think that that's what's going on in this text. Jesus is not some sort of killjoy. In fact, one of the things that got Jesus in trouble is he had too much fun. Religious folks couldn't handle the parties he went to and the people he hung out with. It seemed to them like he was just enjoying life too much. And God wants us to enjoy life. It's a big part of why God made it. I mean, go, go back to the creation story, Genesis chapter one. It's a sort of poem where God repeats this, this word over and over again. Whenever God creates something, what's God call it? Good. And this word, it's not referring to like creation's moral character. Like God isn't saying, look how well behaved it is. No, this word, it's referring to, to its aesthetics. I mean, and another way to translate it is beautiful. It's captivating. It's God stepped back going, whoa, it's amazing. This is God actually enjoying how beautiful it all is. And I would argue that God desires for us to enjoy just how beautiful life is, how good it all is. I mean, think about how God set it up. Food, come on now. I know y'all hungry. You're always the ones that sneak out of here early so you can go to lunch. Let's talk about some food. Who loves some food up in here? Come on, make some noise. Yeah. God could have made that really boring, right? Everything just tastes like bland chicken. But God didn't do that. God gave us spices. He gave us the miracle of cilantro. Mm. Some tacos today, am I right? We got to spice some things up, literally. All right, I'm going to go there. Making babies. I said it. Making babies. That could have been really boring. Am I right? It could have been. I mean, it could have made babies like putting a seed in the ground, a baby pops up, right? Could have been that simple. You got them all growing in your backyard. But that's not how God did it. God made it a little bit more fun than that. Can I get an amen? All you young people in the room, in due time. Don't rush it. God, God desires for us to enjoy life. It's how God has set things up. So what is Jesus getting at here in John chapter 12? Well, let's break it down. Let's take it one piece at a time. And let's start with the word that probably grabs our attention, hate. It's a strong word, isn't it? Jesus says you gotta hate your life. Oh, it just feels kind of off. Well, in the Greek, it's this word meseo. And I think where we get hung up is that we, we only have one English word for the word hate. And that word connects to some strong emotions, doesn't it? Like for us, to hate something is what you do with your emotions. You have these really awful feelings towards something. That's what it means to hate. Well, in the Greek, there's another word that's actually closer to that than this. This word, meseo, it has nothing to do with our emotions. It's a choice that we make. It's an action. It's something that we do. And sometimes it's, it's translated as to move against, to renounce, or to surrender. And I think that might be the more helpful way to understand this word. Whoever surrenders their life for me will keep it for eternal life. Now let's keep going because there's something else interesting here. Jesus mentions the word life three different times. Did you catch that? Three different times. Now again, in the English, we only have one word for life and it's life. Well, the Greeks had several different words for life and they all were a bit nuanced. They meant kind of slightly different things. The first two times Jesus uses the word life, he's actually using this Greek word suke or psyche. And perhaps the most helpful definition I've ever come across for this word is it, is it refers to the things of life. 
the details. Y'all say details. See, according to the Greeks, this is how they thought. Your psyche, your suke, this part of your life, it's what you accumulated, it's what you accomplished, it's what you experienced in between the moment you were born and the moment you die. All of that right there, all of that stuff, all those details, it's your suke. So it's your job, it's your house, it's the stuff that you've paid for, it's the things that you've experienced, it's your relationships, it's your accomplishments, it's all the details. Are you with me? It's the facts about you on your driver's license that you're probably not 100% truthful about. Am I right? This is your suke. It's your psyche. It's the details. Okay? Now, the third time Jesus uses the word life, he uses a different word. He uses the word zoe. And zoe is way bigger than that. This is one of John's favorite words. He uses it all throughout his gospel. But this word is referring to the part of life that transcends all of the details. It's bigger than all of that. It's the fact of life itself. It's the deeper kind of life. That's bigger than all the details. Bigger than all the details. That still might sound kind of weird and out there for you, so let me, let me explain it to you like this. It's like uh, a wedding. I had the opportunity to officiate a really beautiful wedding last night. Aren't weddings great? Unless you're paying for them. You know, some of you are out there right now. Weddings are great, but when you, when you go to a wedding, there's, like, there's two different ways really to experience it. You got the details of the wedding, the very expensive details. Parents, am I right? You got the dress, you got the attire, you got the food, you got the decorations, you got the music, you got the venue, you've got the colors, you've got the, all of it, the family, the people, all the details, the expensive ones, the things that cost you money. There's one way to experience a wedding, it's the details. But then there's the other part of the wedding. There's what's actually happening at the wedding. That thing that nobody really sees but everybody can experience. That sort of weird union that's taking place between two people. There's that part of the wedding too. The part of the wedding that kind of moves us. My favorite moment in a wedding is when, when the groom looks at the bride for the very first time. Favorite part of the wedding. Everybody can kind of feel it, right? So there's the details of a wedding and then there's the depth of the wedding. There's what's actually going on. There's what actually matters at a wedding. I don't know about you, but I've never really gotten moved from the details at a wedding. That's not entirely true, actually. One time there was this really great chocolate fondue fountain. What is it that moves you? You see, the, the details are like the psyche, like the suke. The, the union, the thing that's actually happening is like the zoe. It's the deeper thing. And it's possible, isn't it, to get so hung up on the details that we miss the depth? Isn't that possible? Have you ever been to a wedding with somebody who just loves to critique all the details? I can't believe they picked that color. I can't believe they picked those kind of dresses. And you're just like, shush. You see what's happening? It's beautiful. Be quiet. It's unfortunate when we do that, and we do it in life too all the time. We can get so caught up in the details, in the stuff, in the particulars, that we can miss out on the depth on the things that actually matter. You see, Jesus has come to invite us into Zoe, to move us past just the details and to invite us into the depth, into the, to the life that actually matters. This is what Jesus is all about. And it's all over the place throughout the Gospel of John. Chapter one, from the very beginning, it says that in Jesus was life. It was Zoe. 
And that life was the light of all humankind. And then later on in chapter 10, Jesus even says himself, I have come that you may have life. You may have Zoe, the deeper, the more abundant kind of life that goes beyond what you have or what you don't have or how things have worked out or how they haven't worked out. It goes beyond all of that. It's deeper and it's bigger and it's way better. This is why Jesus has come to offer that to us. But notice how he says, we go about receiving it. How do we enter into that kind of life? How do we enter into the Zoe, according to Jesus in John chapter 12? We surrender the suke. We lay it down. We let it go. We give it away. That's how we enter in to this deeper kind of life. But here's the thing. And come on now. This is where I just need you to get honest. We love the details, don't we? We love them. We're all about the details. That's all we ever think about are the details. We're consumed by it. We, we live in a culture that is just obsessed with the details. I and mean, when we're inundated with this sort of nonstop way of thinking, it floods us from every angle in it. It's this way of thinking to go something like this. Here's what you do. You want to be happy? Get as much stuff as you possibly can. Get it as fast as you can. And then spend a ton of energy and time holding on to it as long as you can. Comfort, security, excess. Man, this is the DNA. This is the air that we breathe, folks. I mean, Amazon's new thing is you can get stuff shipped to your house in certain cities in an hour. I love their, their marketing campaign, from zero to happy in under an hour. What's that suggesting to us? Where do you find happiness? In the details. And get as much details as you possibly can. I mean, I would argue that we live in probably the most indulgent culture in human history. Now, I don't want to spend a bunch of time arguing with you about that or trying to prove it to you. I'm just going to assume for the sake of time that you probably agree with me on that. Am I right? Instead, here's the question I want to ask, quite simply this. Are we better off for it? Is our obsession with the details, is it better, are we better for it? Because I've found that in all of our excess, right, all of our indulgence and all of our success and all of our efficiency, we love efficiency, we don't just want to get the stuff. We want to get it as fast as we can to make it as easy as possible, right? We love all that. I'm mean, going to be honest. A lot of that's nice. Air conditioning, amen? Love me some AC. Whew. So I'm not saying it's all bad, but what I've found is we can get so caught up with all of this that it has this way of choking out the deeper stuff. And it tends to just give us more time and space to worry about things, doesn't it? To be consumed by stuff. Like the other day, I'm, I'm about to do something. It's a little scary. It went okay last service, but I don't know about y'all. I'm going to let you into this. Give you a little taste of how I think. Some of you are going to love this. Some of you are going to be like, that was so weird. But I'm going to go with it anyway, okay? So the other day, I was making some boxed macaroni and cheese for my kids. Some of you, I've lost you already because you're like, I can't believe you feed your kids that. I bought it at Aldi, Okay. I don't know why I even said that. I've just noticed if you tell people you got it at Aldi, they give you a break. It's like, I bagged it myself, all right? Back off. I'm making box macaroni and cheese. And here's what happens. It like hit me. This moment just hit me. I got out of nowhere. I never thought about it before. But I can make enough macaroni and cheese to feed my kids in like 15 to 20 minutes. It like blew my mind. I never thought about this before. Because I started thinking, there was a time in human history. You know how long that would have taken? To make enough macaroni and cheese to feed like three people, it's taking like a whole week. 
Because you got to grow the stuff. You got to make the macaroni. You got to let it sit out there. You got to get the cheese. I mean, I'm not really sure how you make macaroni and cheese from scratch, but I can imagine it took way longer than 15 or 20 minutes back in the day. Am I right? And I started thinking, it's amazing. I got all this time now, all this, these things that I can do instead of, you know, making sure we got enough food to eat. And like, but then I started thinking about this. What do we do with all that extra time? How do we spend it? We just pack it full, don't we? Instead, I just give myself to, to, to going after more things, trying to achieve and accomplish more stuff that I can what? Just be really worried about. Just give myself more reasons to be stressed out about something. Because I started thinking, I told you this gets weird, right? I started thinking back to like the week-long macaroni and cheese days. I started thinking, maybe it wasn't all that bad back then. Like Little House on the Prairie, like Oregon Trail. Y'all play Oregon Trail back in the day. How you gonna fjord the river, right? I was like thinking back to this time and I'm like, man, you know what? It was a good day if you didn't die. So it was. We could, I'm gonna wake up today. I'm gonna make sure we got enough food to eat. Maybe do some work around my homestead. And it's a good day. You might die of dysentery, right? But it was simple. I mean, think about how uncomplicated, how simple a good day would have been. And this is what you do. You're waking up. Hey, did we live today? Did we survive? We did. Good day. This is wonderful. Tell me something. How complicated is a good day for you? It's complicated, isn't it? All the stuff that has to go just right, all the people we got to please, all the things that we got to accomplish, all the stuff we got to fit in to an eight-hour workday or whatever it is, all these things we got to accomplish. And if we don't, don't do it just right. How do we feel about our day? Ugh. And we go to bed stressed, thinking about how we got to do it all. Am I speaking to anybody right now? I mean, the simple question I'm asking is, are we better off for this? Are we better off for, for being so inundated by getting more details? Are we missing out on the depth? Are we missing out on the depth? And you see, Jesus has come to invite us away from this obsession with the details and into a deeper quality of life where we are much more aware, much more aware of how good it actually is. But notice, it's really what John chapter 12 is all about. According to Jesus, though, what has to happen in order for us to experience that? There's a sort of death that has to take place. This is what he's talking about in chapter 12, verse 24. He says to us, very truly, I tell you that unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and what? Dies. It remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The death of the one seed provides life to the many. And of course, and he's definitely hinting at his, his own unique death that's gonna take place in just a few days. His sacrificial death on the cross that then opened the way for you and I to experience abundant, beautiful, Zoe kind of life. But I think he's doing more than that too. I think Jesus in this text is inviting us to follow his lead. To take on this pattern of life. He goes on to say, Later on in the text, whoever serves me must follow me and where I am, my servants also will be. Here's the heart of this message. If you don't remember anything, if you don't write anything else down, write this down. Here it is. Hope you hear this. The cross is not only our means, it's our model. The cross is not just our own, it's only not, not, not just our means, it's, it's our model. It's, it's our way of life. Jesus doesn't just invite us to trust 
what he's done for us on the cross as a way to getting into some better afterlife. Jesus also calls us to pick up our own cross, to follow him, to take on a sacrificial way of life where the, where the air that we breathe is self-giving, sacrificial love. Somebody say amen to that. This is what Jesus has invited us into. And I'm gonna tell you right now, it is not an easy way to live. It's not, but it's the most beautiful way to live. And it's one of the ways that God rescues us. Because I've found that, man, when we get so caught up in the details, when we make our life all about pursuing more, getting as much as we can, as fast as we can, and holding on to it as long as we can, you know what happens is we end up winding up really bored. Bored. It's like in the timeless motion picture, the movie Old School, critically acclaimed, real classy. You can admit if you've seen Old School. Have you seen Old School? All right, you can clap for that, I guess. That feels kind of weird. Um, there's this scene from the movie, though, that if you've seen it, everybody remembers. Will Ferrell, who's the greatest? He's at a party, and somebody offers him a drink, right? And he's like, nope, can't do it. They're like, why not? And this is what he says. We got a big Saturday plan tomorrow. He says, we're gonna go to Home Depot. We're gonna buy some flooring, maybe some wallpaper. See how it goes. We've got enough time. We might even go to Bed Bath & Beyond. We'll see if we can fit it all in. And it's funny, it really is, it's hilarious, but it's also kind of scary, isn't it? Because it's terribly true. In this movie, he's got all the details. He's got them all, but guess what? He's bored. He's bored. This is where we can find ourselves. And I just want to say it real clearly. You know, more is not always more. Faster is not always better. And being comfortable is not the same thing as being alive. It's not. Jesus wants to rescue us from all the ways in which we settle for a smaller story because we're really good at that. And, and we hear a lot about how Jesus died on the cross for you to save you from your sins, to give you peace and all that. And guess, hear me, that's true, that's good, that's wonderful, but that's not the whole story. Jesus also wants to invite you into something bigger than that. Jesus wants you to be a part of what he's doing in the world. In Jesus Christ, God intends to set the world right through the power of the cross. And the call of Jesus is to take up our own cross, to make like a seed and die, and to get caught up in the healing of the world, to continue the work that got started on that first Easter weekend. This is the invitation of Jesus. And part of me expects to hear an amen to that or something. But we often settle for smaller stories, don't we? my favorite books, it's this book called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. I've talked about it before by a guy named Donald Miller. It's one of the most influential books I think I've probably ever read, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, if you want to write it down. But it's, it's a book all about how the same aspects that go into to telling a great story go into living a really great life. And in this book, he talks about a friend of his named Jason, who kind of wakes up to all of this one day. And he and his wife, they've been married for a while. They're kind of in that long middle they got a 13-year-old daughter, and they're just bored. Things are stale. Things are cold between them and their marriage. They're just miles apart. At the same time, things with their daughter have turned kind of rocky. Which 13-year-olds, it's easy for that to happen. But they found some drugs she was hiding. 
and she's dating this guy that neither one of them like very much. In fact, I love, I love how they describe the guy, though. This will, some of you will enjoy this. They describe the guy she's dating as a kid who smelled like smoke and only answered questions with single words. Yeah, no, whatever, and why. Some of us, we know that guy, right? So things aren't good. They're bored. They're distant. They're cold. feels dead. Well, one night he can't sleep, and he's just thinking about all this, and he realizes, man, they're living a really boring story. At the same time, as a parent, he hasn't done a good job of creating some larger role, some more exciting role for his daughter to play, which is probably one of the reasons why she's doing some of this stuff. You know, parents, sometimes when we get so fixated on keeping our kids safe and comfortable, we create really boring roles for them. This is why we see him act out sometimes. So he's wrestling with all of this. He's thinking about all of it, and, and he's tired of it. And he decides, you know what? We're gonna, we're, gonna live a, we're gonna live a better story. We're gonna figure out something to do. I wanna get caught up in something bigger than all of this. And so he's researching it, and he comes across this organization that builds orphanages all over the world. And he does some research, and he finds out that they can sponsor the building of an orphanage for about $25,000. And so without consulting anybody, guess what he does? He signs them up for it. You can kind of imagine where this is going, Right? Listen to what he says. So I went home and I called a family meeting. I didn't tell my wife at first, which it turns out was a big mistake. But I told them about this village in Mexico and about the orphanage and all these terrible things that could happen if these kids don't get an orphanage. Then I told them I agreed to build it. And my wife sat there looking at me like I'd lost my mind. And I looked at my daughter, her eyes as big as melons, and she wasn't happy. She knew this would mean she'd have to give up her allowance. And who knows what else? They just sat there in silence. And the longer they sat there, the more I wondered if I had lost my mind. And said so the daughter and his wife each went to their rooms. They didn't talk to him anymore that night. But later on, when he got into his bed, he explained to his wife why he did it. That, yeah, sure, he kind of jumped at it, but he just felt like they were living a boring story. It was just about them and their stuff and just trying to play it safe. And the next morning, here's what he said happened. The next day, Andy came to me, which is his wife, came to me while I was doing the dishes, and she put her arms around me and leaned her face into the back of my neck and told me she was proud of me. He said he hadn't heard her say anything like that in years. So I told her I was sorry, and I didn't, I didn't think to ask her about it, and I just got excited. And she said she forgave me, but that it didn't matter. She said we had an orphanage to build. Now, we were probably going to make bigger mistakes, but we would build it. And a few days later, their daughter came into their room at night, crawled in their bed in between both of them, just like she did when she was a little kid. And she told them that she'd made a website and that they could start telling the story about the orphanage. Maybe other people would want to help, and maybe we could go take a trip there and meet these, these kids. And a few days later, you know what she did? She broke up with the boyfriend. And I love what he says about that. He says, no girl who plays the role of a hero dates a guy who uses her. She knows who she is. She just forgot for a little while. There's so much about this story that I love. So much about it. You know, some of us in here, maybe our marriage is on the rocks and we, we read book after book. We, we attend marriage class after marriage class. We do all of that. We think what we need is more information. You know what maybe is missing is the cross. Maybe you and your family need to be about something bigger than you and your family. 
Maybe you need to invite, invite all of you together to somehow be caught up in what God is doing in the world, to sacrificially give your life away for the healing of the world. My biggest fear for us right now as a church, as the American church, is we are so inundated, we are caught up in the culture about details. We think the greatest thing God can do for us is just make sure we get everything that we want. So Jesus is our ticket to the American dream. Jesus is our ticket to just a little bit of a better life. And so we've bought into this Jesus that honestly doesn't really cost us anything. And that's scary for me because when we do that, we buy into a a really small story, we fall asleep, and we don't experience all that Jesus has to offer us. You wanna know why Jesus doesn't get into the hype in John chapter 12? He knows it's a bunch of hollow hallelujahs. I mean, he's seeing people that are celebrating him as the Messiah. You know what? A couple days later, you know what they're doing? Screaming for his crucifixion. It's because he didn't do for them what they thought a Messiah should do. He didn't come in and liberate them from their enemies and kick out the Romans because Jesus had a bigger liberation in mind. He wanted to rescue them from their bloated egos, from their pride, from their indulgence from their racism, from their national, he had a bigger thing in mind. He wanted to rescue them from their sin. And the same is true for us today. And the dangerous thing about a waiting room is that we start buying into this lie that the greatest thing that Jesus can do is make my life a little bit easier. When really what Jesus wants more than anything is to invite you into this bigger story of what he's doing in the world. And so my question for you this morning What's this look like for you? I don't know about you, but I'm tired of throwing up a bunch of hollow hallelujahs. I'm tired of that. I'm bored with it. I'm ready for bleed for something. Like I'm ready to actually give my life for something that matters. How about you? Maybe that's gonna involve you doing something you're not doing right now. You need to get involved. You need to show up. If you're having a hard time figuring out what that might look like, come talk to me. We'll help plug you in. You can get involved in our after-school program, maybe. Show up for some kids who need you, who need somebody to care. Or maybe come out on a Tuesday night to Circles, Lexington. It's my favorite night of the week. You watch a whole army of people show up and surround some really amazing women in our community who are fighting like crazy to get out of poverty and create a better future for them and their family. It's the best night of the week. What do you need to do? What needs to happen? How do you need to bleed? I think at the same time, this is way bigger than that though, isn't it? This isn't just about looking for another thing to do. This is about taking on a whole new way of life, a cross-shaped way of life where we jump at every opportunity to offer the kind word, to lend a hand, to leverage what we have, not to get ahead, but to lift other people up, to further God's kingdom here on earth. Are you with me? You don't have to like me much after this sermon. It's fine. My kids are here and they love me. But I hope you understand where this is coming from. Because in my experience, sometimes the healthiest place to be is not an uncomfortable place. The most dangerous place to be is in a comfortable one where we fall asleep and we miss out on the incredible adventure that Jesus wants to invite us into.